I hope Pastor Mark has really studied this passage because I read it a lot and I'm like, what in the world does this mean? (laughs) So here we go. Ecclesiastes 11, 1 through 6. It says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the Word of God. Well, today's sermon is on risk, and thank you guys for risking to come here this morning and, and hear me. I didn't know how many people were actually going to be be here, but it's good to good to have you. Um, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors. If you're visiting with us, we've been making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've got a couple more sermons, and then we're all done, um, and we'll hopefully uh, wrap up this book in just the next couple of weeks. Also, another thing about risk is this passage is risky to preach because it's a tough one. And um, I did study it this week. I, don't, I didn't hear all that Jason said, but I, I think he, some, he, he tried to like give an insult. Did you insult me? Okay, I was back there. I was waiting for you to come back. You just walked down the steps, didn't you? That's why, you know, okay, I get it. No, I, I actually, this is, there are some complicated verses in this, in this text and, and it's never a good feeling when you're sitting there and you're not a hundred percent sure that you're right. Now I I am sure of this. I'm a hundred percent sure as much as I know that the things that I'm going to say are true from this, from the Bible. However, I may not be a hundred percent sure. And I'm not a hundred percent sure that it's necessarily the point of what this passage is. So that's sometimes as a preacher where you have to land when you encounter difficult texts is, um, there's an old, there's an old saying that, um, better to preach the, the wrong sermon or, or the right truth from the wrong text than to preach the, you know, the wrong text or whatever, and not get the point at all, not get the point right. So this is, this is a very complicated passage. I think I've got the general idea and I think the things that are expressed here are true. So we're going to dive in and and see where we land. I've titled the sermon, the emptiness of playing it safe, because I think the passage is mainly an encouragement to risk. Now, what is risk? Risk um, can be defined as follows. Risk is any action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. That's a risk. And we live with risks every day. We live risky lives, even if we're not intending to make risks. Life is just full of risk. There are risks in using the gifts that God has given us. There are risks in sharing our faith. There's risks in having or adopting children. There's risks in giving financially to support ministry. There's risk in going to the mission field. There's risk in almost everything we do. 
Now, why is there risk? Well, there's risk because there's such a thing as not knowing the future, which we do not get access to. If there were no ignorance about the future, there would be no risk. There'd be no such thing. Risk is only possible because we don't know how things are going to turn out. And since we don't know how things are going to turn out much of the time, risk is woven into the very fabric of our lives. And that's one of the themes that plays out in this book of Ecclesiastes is how the idea of risk pervades our lives because we're not the ones who are in control. God is. But still, even knowing that, we are prone to play it safe. Whenever we look at scripture, it's good to ask what part of our fallenness is a particular passage addressing. And I think in this passage, the thing that God wants to key in on in our lives is our risk avergence. We avoid risk. We tend to shy away from it. We tend to not want to do things that we feel are risky. And therefore, God wants to confront us with that fear this morning. And in this case, he wants to encourage us with um, our proneness to fear and the tendency we have to spend our entire lives running scared, more fearful of events and people than we are of God. Here's what John Piper says in his book, Risk is Right, which I believe is free online if you'd like to check it out. He says the following, the futility of avoiding a risk-free place to stand has paralyzed many of us. We avoid risk even if we want to. We cannot avoid risk even if we want to. Ignorance and uncertainty about tomorrow is our native air. All of our plans for tomorrow's activities can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home under the covers or ride on the freeways. Behold today. One of my aims is to explode the myth of safety and to somehow deliver you from the enchantment of security because it's a mirage. It doesn't exist. Every direction you turn, there are unknowns and things beyond your control. End quote. And multiple times in this passage, Solomon tells us that we don't know what's going to happen in life. In fact, three times he says it in verses five and six. Look there quickly. Verse five. As you do not know, there's the first part, a little bit later in the verse, so you do not know. And then verse six, right in the middle, for you do not know. So it's pretty clear that at least part of this is trying to help us understand, look, we don't know what's going to happen in our lives and we can't build our lives seeking to control our lives because that is not the way to avoid risk. Just because we don't know what's going to happen, how should we live? In other words, should we play it safe or should we take risks? And I think this passage is moving us in the direction of risk-taking. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these six verses under three headings. Here they are. Why we should risk, verses 1 and 2. Why we don't risk, verses 3 and 4. And why... We can risk verses five and six. So that's where we're going. We're talking about risk and we're going to look at why we should, why we don't, and why we can. Here's the first one, why we should. Verse one, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
What does that mean? Here's what I think it doesn't mean, okay, in the humorous way that only Doug Wilson can put it. Casting your bread on the water is not about feeding the ducks. Okay, that, that interpretation is pretty clear. We can't go there. So what is it? Well, there, from my study, there's at least two possible interpretations of what this proverb means. Cast your bread upon the waters and you'll find it after many days. One is that it's referring to overseas trade. And that it's, set, it's telling us to take our bread. Now, bread in Ecclesiastes is used four times. Ecclesiastes 9.7, 9.11, 10.19, and right here. And almost exclusively, bread is always referring to something to do with what our money can get for us or to money itself. And so the idea is very, it's financial. Cast your bread upon the waters and you'll find it after many days. So he's not speaking literal bread. He's using bread as a metaphor for finances, money. And a possible interpretation is that this is referring to overseas trade. Cast your bread upon the water. Send it out and you will find it after many days. That is, it will come back to you. Verse 2, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Now, if we take this idea that verse 1 is referring to overseas trade, then verse 2 would be about diversifying investments. Not putting all our eggs in one basket. Because we don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. Therefore, we want to preserve financial security. Therefore, we want to make good investments. And the best way to make good investments is to diversify those investments, not put them all in one basket. So if that ship goes down, we're out. We've lost all our money. I don't think that is the primary meaning of the passage. I don't. I think it's much more general than that. I still think it has to do with money. But I lean in the direction of, a, of another interpretation. And that is that it's mainly about generosity. It's mainly about being generous and not being stingy. So it can certainly include, I mean, it, it's what both interpretations agree on is that it's both, it, it has to do with money. What's not is, should we play it safe with money or should we risk with money? And I think it's about risk. And not playing it safe. Although there are certainly proverbs that indicate that we should be wise with our finances and all of that. This passage is not teaching recklessness. But I think it is teaching generosity. So in this sense, verses 1 and 2 would mean something like this. Be generous. Be lavishly generous. Give a portion to seven or even to eight. Continue to give up to when it hurts. Push, push with it, for you don't know what disaster may happen upon the earth. So the idea is be generous, be lavish, take your daily provision and share it in lots of ways. Send it out to help other people. And that's why we should risk. Now, here's why I prefer the second interpretation to the first. There's hints in Proverbs that that indicate that our generosity will be repaid. And that's what I think verse one is teaching. So listen to a few verse. Proverbs nineteen seventeen. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. Proverbs twenty one thirteen. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will himself cry and not be answered. Proverbs twenty two nine. He who is generous will be blessed. 
before he gives some of his food to the poor. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-seven: he who gives to the poor will never want, but he shuts his eyes and will have many curses. So you've got these ideas of being generous, being gracious, have being repaid, being blessed, not having want. I think that's what Solomon's reinforcing right here. He wrote many Proverbs about it in the book of Proverbs, and we see it play out here in verses 1 and 2 as well. So we should risk, we should be generous, we should be lavish, and in unexpected ways and at unexpected times, our generosity will be a source of blessing to us. It can and does come back to us. So that's why we should risk, verses 1 and 2. Second, why we don't risk, verses 3 and 4. Now, these, again, are very difficult past, uh, verses to understand as well. They say, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now, what does that have to do with generosity? What does that have to do with the previous two verses? Well, here's where we're going to go. Look at the end of verse 2, and you'll notice what Solomon says. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. So he's got disaster in his mind. He's got calamity. He's got something bad could happen. And so verse 3, I think, needs to be interpreted in light of that. So he's talking about potential disaster in verse 3. So what he says in verse 3 is, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Now, that's a statement of fact. But the clouds being full of rain can yield great blessing or it could yield disaster, right? It could be that the rain could be a source of blessing. It could rain and water the crops and provide food. But it could rain so much that there's a flood And no one knows, we don't know whether those packed clouds will be full of rain, will bring blessing or curse. So why we don't risk, this is a reason we don't risk. We don't risk because of uncertainties. I think this is also played out in in the second part of verse 3, where he says, if a tree falls to the south or to the north... In the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Again, potential disaster with a tree fall, right? I mean, it could be a source of great blessing. The tree could fall. It could be cut up. It could be placed in a a stack for firewood. That firewood could be brought into your home, put in your fireplace, and used to create a comfy, warm atmosphere on a cold winter night. It could be a great source of blessing, that tree falling. But what if the tree falls the other way and crushes your house? There's potential disaster with the tree fall. And we can't determine what's going to happen. We don't know what will happen. If the clouds are full of rain, they could empty themselves on the earth. That, that emptying could be a source of blessing or a source of curse. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, that tree fall could be a source of blessing or a source of curse. We don't know. But with that uncertainty, we avoid risk. We avoid it. And in the context, I think that interpretation makes sense. I don't want to be dogmatic about it. I think the verses are difficult, but that's at at least where I lean. And I think the the larger context, if we move back into the sermon that I preached last week on the end of chapter 10, we we get some help here as well. Look at chapter 10, verse 13. Or sorry, 10, verse 14. 
talking about the words of a fool. Remember this, verse 14, a fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be or who can tell what will be after him. So we don't know the future, right? We don't know what's going to happen. Then verse 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Remember what I said last week about that verse, that money, it's not, Solomon's not saying money answers everything ultimately. He's using it as a phrase of speech. Better to have some than not have some. When the day of adversity comes, when trials come, when difficulties come, it's better to have some money than not have some money. Not having money will hurt you. And then out of that, he moves into verse chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and he says, I don't want you to get the, the, bad, the, the wrong idea here. While money answers everything, that doesn't mean you should be stingy. That doesn't mean you should let your frugality become idolatry. He says, since we don't know the future, verse 14, and since money answers everything, shouldn't we do all we can to secure our financial future and be frugal? He says, don't misunderstand me here. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, so on and so forth. So while the Bible commends wisdom, including saving and not being reckless with our finances, it also assaults our tendency to trust in our money in an idolatrous way. Consider the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, right? Luke 12, verses 15 to 21. And he said to them, take care, Jesus says, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. For God, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, what's the point of that parable? The point of that parable is not, it's never right to tear down a barn and build a bigger one. The whole point is why he's doing it. He's doing it so that he can provide a sense of security for himself and he can rest and relax So he's using his money and he's using what he can build with his money as a source of security and certainty. And then God says to him, you're going to die tonight and you don't even know it. You're not rich toward me. You're not even thinking about me. You're not even thinking about internal investments. You're thinking about temporal earthly ones only. And this is why Paul comes along in 1 Timothy 6 and says the following. As for the rich in this present age, which is all of us. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. He has to tell us, riches are uncertain. But on God, set their hopes not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. There's that idea of generosity again. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So again, Paul and Jesus are pushing us toward generosity. It's pushing us not toward trusting in the uncertainty of money, trusting in or relying on our money to get us through, but rather trusting in God. And it's that uncertainty that leads us to avoid risk. 
But it's not just uncertainty that leads us to avoid risk. It's also possibilities. And that's in verse 4. He who observes the, in, the, the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now, what's going on here? This is a prudent guy. This is a wise man. And he looks out and he says, I don't think the conditions are right right now for planting. I don't think this is a good time to invest. Uh, Look at those clouds, Uh, the wind, the weather. Just the conditions aren't right. The climate isn't right for doing that right now. I I think I'm going to hold back. It's not just uncertainties, not knowing what's going to happen that makes avoid risk. It's also the possibility of misfortune. We want to keep our options open. We want to wait for ideal circumstances, and so we procrastinate. We want to wait for the perfect opportunity. And since we can't find the perfect opportunity, we end up waiting around and doing nothing. And Solomon's attacking that idea in verse 4. He's saying, don't just sit around and wait and do nothing. Don't just keep your life open to endless possibility so that you fail to risk. There's never going to be ideal conditions in this world, ever. And we can use that as an excuse not to risk. You ever use that as an excuse? I have. Ever used uncertainty or, or more other possibilities as an excuse not to risk now? All kinds of ways we justify ourselves out of a, a risky life. To use a, a silly illustration... Of, of, of loving the options and having possibilities. Um, my wife loves going to restaurants that she's never been to before. And she, cause she loves possibilities. She loves keeping the options open. But at the same time, as you look at that menu that you've never been to before, and you're looking at all these options and all these, all these things that look so good, Right, that dish would be good right now, or that dish would be good, and oh, that description's really tempting. That sounds great. Oh, but look over here. We can get paralyzed by possibilities, can't we? We usually narrow our choices down to one or two options, and then when the fir- server finally arrives, we glance down and like, uh, okay, I just that, we impulsively order something that just caught our eye, or it's. If it's a restaurant you know, you might play it safe and just go with a regular meal. But we're sometimes scared to commit to that food choice, making the wrong one, and then losing out on all the other good meals that we could have enjoyed that, li- that night. We, we don't like having to choose sometimes and just make the decision. Now, that's a silly illustration of a, of a much bigger issue. But I think, although it's silly, it is a small Admittedly ridiculous picture of the problem with choice making, especially among my generation. We are the generation that likes to keep our options open. Commitment averse. We're afraid of missing out, afraid of settling, afraid of being hurt, afraid of accountability. And the problem with this whole approach, though, is there comes a point when not choosing becomes a choice, doesn't it? Not choosing anyone means choosing no one. 
Not choosing anywhere means choosing nowhere. Ironically, the inability to make a choice then is not freedom, it's slavery. The inability to decide and make a choice is not freedom. It is slavery to your own autonomy. See, when you choose, you can actually get in on something. But if you constantly keep your options open, you're not actually free to enjoy anything. We find our greatest freedom in making an actual choice instead of just keeping our options open. Freedom is found in choosing the particular, not choice in general. Now, let me bring this down and make this concrete. This has to do with relationships and the hookup breakup dynamic of the millennial generation. It has to do with commitment to a church and investing yourself in relationships and staying with it because those choices always involve risk. Tim Keller reminds me of that famous passage in C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, his book, The Four Loves, on the risk of love. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this whole idea of keeping possibilities open and never making decisions, observing the wind, regarding the clouds. Lewis says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket and coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy or not least to risk of tragedy is damnation. You get what Lewis is saying there? He's saying to, to, to back off and to avoid making a choice is actually to, to make a choice to risk, to risk in love, to risk in relationship, to risk in investing yourself, to risk in being generous to those who might not pay you back, to risk in investing yourself in hard relationships, to risk yourself in ministry, to risk yourself with any number of things, ministry options, ministry ventures, what the Baldwins did when they went to Serbia, to invest yourself like that, to risk your heart of being broken is better to not risk and to end up with a hard heart. That's the point. Better to have your heart broken than to withhold your heart from being broken and create a hard heart because that's what will happen. That's what will happen. Better to choose than to be paralyzed by possibilities. And that's why Solomon is pushing us away from the idea that we can just observe the wind and we can just regard the clouds and not and, and sow and, and reap and all that. So those are two reasons why we don't risk. We don't risk because we're uncertain of what might happen and we want to keep our options open. And neither one of those is a reason to avoid risk because we don't know what's going to happen anyway. So here's why we can risk, verses 5 and 6. 
Here's the reason given in verse 5. Let's look at it. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb or a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Here's a reason we can risk. Because God's in control. God's in control. And notice, notice what, he, what Solomon zeroes in on here. He zeroes in on pregnancy. Is there any area of life where we feel more not in control than pregnancy? Right? He says, we don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a, of a woman with child. The whole idea of pregnancy. We, we don't know that. And because we don't know that, our culture will take violent ways to get it under control. But if God is in control, if God knows that, if though we don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb, but God knows because it's his work who makes everything, including babies, then we can trust him. We will never, ever, ever have an inside track on what God is doing. His ways are mysterious. There will always be a level of mystery to it. But since we are ignorant of God and his ways, we might as well leave it in his hands. That's what Solomon is encouraging us to do. And he uses pregnancy as a supreme example of a human endeavor, the results of which are completely outside of our control. So because God is in control, we can risk. That's verse 5. Verse 6, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Now he says, we can trust God. God's at work. God makes everything. God is sovereign over the world that he's made. So get to work and work hard. In the morning sow your seed, that is, Get after this generous life. Get after working hard. Get after risking. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know what will prosper. We don't know what's going to happen if we invest in that relationship or share the gospel in that conversation or give that money here or whatever the risk may be. We don't know what will happen. But this we do know, it may turn out really good. It may turn out really, really good. It says, you don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So what Solomon's trying to do here is he's trying to show us that since we cannot know if all will go well, we ought not to try to demand assurance of success before we begin to take a risk. God's not going to give us that. That's not walking by faith. And those who believe that God reigns are those who risk most. See, our avoidance of risk is a doctrine of God problem. It's a doctrine of God problem. It's a faith problem. Now, here's where we're going to go, and we're going to wrap up in just a minute. But I want you to go to Matthew 25 with me. Matthew chapter 25. If you're not familiar with the Bible and you've got one in your lap, just go to the right and keep going until you hit the gospel of Matthew and turn to chapter 25, 
and verse, we're going to look at verses 14 to 30. I'm not going to read them all, but I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up here. I said that our avoidance of risk is a doctrine of God problem. That's what the parable of the talents teaches us. Now, let me give you the situation. All right, we're familiar, I hope. Most of us are familiar with the, the parable of the talents. The idea is there's a master, and he's going on a journey. And he comes, and he gives his, he has three servants. And he entrusts them with different levels of stewardship while he's gone. He says, okay, here's, I'm going to give five talents to you, two talents to you, and one talent to you. And go invest it. And prosper my work while I'm away. I'm leaving you in charge. Go make something happen. And that's what God does with us as Christians in his kingdom. So the master goes away. Two of them, the one with five talents and two talents, goes out and makes a profit for it. One of them doesn't. One of them chooses to take the talent that he's been given and bury it in the ground. No risk. No risk. The master is going to get everything he got right back. But that's not what the master wants. The master wants what he gave with interest. With, he, wants it, he wants profit to be turned, not just to be given back what he gave initially. So he comes back from the journey. He finds the, the, two, the two that have been given the, the, the greater talents, five and two. And, he, and they bring back and they said, look, we've made it. We've, 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 we've increased profit. We've, we've given you more than you gave to us. And he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And then there's this other servant. And here's how he responds to him in Matthew chapter 25. But his servant, his master answered him to the one who did not invest it. You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So punishment, hell right there for that servant. Now, what's the reason he didn't risk? What's the reason he decided to bury it instead of invest it? The parable tells us. And here's the verse. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Now let me ask you this question. Is that master a hard man? I don't think a hard man says, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. You want to spend, you, I mean, a hard man doesn't have joy. The reason he didn't risk is because he had a wrong view of the master. He had hard thoughts about that master. He knew him to be a hard man, not a man who is lavish in his generosity, gives us a stewardship to play a part in a role in his work, in his kingdom. And then at the end, 
takes our little, little stewardship and says, well done. I love you. Come on into the joy of your master. That's our God. But, but get this. The reason some of you, some of us, don't risk has very little to do with money, very little to do with personality, very little to do with relationship, and everything to do with whether or not you believe the gospel. Does commending your employees and welcoming them into your joy sound hard to you? God takes great offense at those who will not risk. And the ultimate reason we don't risk is because we have a wrong view of God. We, the people that I meet that are stingy, that are not generous, that don't risk, even me sometimes, we need to trace that back and say, who is my God? Is my God stingy? Is my God harsh or is my God lavish and generous in his giving? And let me tell you this. He is lavish and he is generous in his giving. He gave his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He gave up everything to come and save us. And at the end of our lives, we receive his commendation, not his condemnation if we are in Christ. And will be welcomed into his joy. That's the ultimate reason we can and should risk. Because we have a God who will take care of us and loves us. If you have a father that loves you and knows that at the end of your life, you're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Risk will not be as big of a problem for you. It won't because you'll be set free. And here's how John Piper concludes this idea. And with this quote, I'll close. This is the promise that empowers us to take risks for the sake of Christ. It's not the impulse of heroism or the lust for adventure or the courage of self-reliance or the need to earn God's favor. It is simple trust in Christ that in him, God will do everything necessary so that we can enjoy making much of him forever. Every good poised to bless us and every evil arrayed against us will in the end help us boast only in the cross, magnify Christ, and glorify our creator. Faith in these promises frees us to risk and to find in our own experience that it's better to lose our life than to waste it. At the end of every other road, secure and risk-free, We'll put our face in our hands and say, I've wasted it. But at the end of the road of risk, taken in reliance on the blood-bought promises of God, there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we confess our unbelief. We believe, help our unbelief. Forgive us when we use uncertainty or possibility as excuses for not risking. Forgive us for hard thoughts of you that lead us to not risking. Help us to taste and see that you are good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in you. And may we know your generosity in our generosity. And may your generosity toward us fuel our generosity toward others. In Jesus' name, amen.